Here are the St. Michael singers with Charles Wesley's Love Divine or Love's Excelling. And there we heard the St. Michael singers with Love Divine or Love's Excelling. And now here's David to introduce the next piece. James Thornton is an environmental lawyer based in Britain. His proudest achievement is getting all the coal-fired power stations in Europe shut down. James talks to Michael Barclay about the influence of his Buddhist faith on his life and work. As I said at the beginning, uh, James Thornton, you're an ordained Zen Buddhist priest, and I wonder how that feeds into your, if it does, into your environmental beliefs. Well, it does very much. Um, One of the things one does in becoming uh, a Buddhist is to uh, 
uh, take the so-called bodhisattva vow, uh, and the vow is to save all sentient beings. Now, I take that in a very literal-minded sort of way. So my work as an environmental lawyer is really trying to save all sentient beings. I, uh, I'm trying to create a better opportunity for all, all life on the planet. And by saving civilization, uh, if we succeed in, in doing that, uh, we're certainly saving a lot of sentient beings. So it's, it's very direct. In the early 90s, you went on a 14-month retreat. And I wonder what you learned about yourself during that time. It was a very, very deep retreat. For much of it, I was doing nine hours of meditation a day. And I would say what I learned on it was uh, my place in, in life. Um, and I, I came out of it very dedicated to uh, trying to help save civilization. Uh, we didn't speak of it in those terms then, but uh, trying to protect the environment. I, and by the end of 14 months, I was um, in a, a very uh, a profound state of um, um, exultation or, I mean, the technical word really is bliss. And it then dawned on me that it would be selfish uh, to spend the rest of my life, uh, you know, in a monastery or in this state and that the job was to go back and, and help. Does music in any way correlate to the states you find in meditation, for example? Yes, uh, in two different ways. Uh, well, I suppose in three, if you were the composer to enter into the space of creating, uh, would bring you there. Uh, when you're a musician playing and you get in the flow uh, and you go beyond your own ego, you go beyond your own thoughts. And indeed, just as in meditation, if you're playing an instrument, when everyday thoughts come in, they interrupt the flow. So in order to play very well, you have to go into that egoless state, which is a, a kind of meditation. And I suppose those feelings which you get from meditation, from Buddhism, uh, love, for example, actually foster a form of optimism. Absolutely. If you are angry, for example, it is an oppositional state to be in. And it's also a state in which the mind can't be creative, can't be searching uh, and succeeding in finding uh, positive solutions. So Buddhism 101, in a way, um, is to go beyond the mind of anger, understand that energy, but go beyond the mind of anger to find positive solutions. And that's really how I use law. It's rather like um, if people feel bitter about something, mm-hmm. um, the bitterness only eats them up, not the object of their bitterness. Well, that's right. And I mean, I'll give you a recent example. Somebody asked me yesterday what I was doing between 3.30 and 4.30 in the morning. And I said, well, of course, I was lying awake. <laughs> now, there's a lot to worry about in the world. And what I was doing uh, was a loving-kindness practice. And in that practice, you start with uh, yourself and your loved ones, and then you move to neutral people, and then you move to people with whom you're having difficulties. And I do it for everyone I'm going to see this week, because inevitably in a week you have people you're very happy to see, people who are neutral, and people who irritate you. And uh, uh, you extend this practice from, may I be happy, may I be healthy, uh, may I be safe, may I be free. And you do that for yourself and your, uh, your loved ones, and then you you move on. And uh, about six months ago, I found that uh, getting annoyed at Donald Trump was just taking too much of my energy. So I started doing this loving kindness practice for Donald Trump. Uh, And what it does do uh, is it lets you detach from all of that madness. And you can watch it quite clearly, but you're no longer drawn into it. And it doesn't drain your own batteries. Uh, So the practice doesn't change him, but it gives you a tremendous amount of space for your own life. And Michael Barclay was talking to James Thornton there. 
Now here's Kenneth McKellar with George Matheson's O Love That Wilt Not Let Me Go. from the actual LP I gave to my father in the 1960s. I was a wee bit scratchy, but a lovely recording nonetheless. But let's get back to David. Larry Gentis and his wife Judy live in Kirkmichael and go to Pitlochry Baptist Church. Larry and Judy now act out the story of Jesus meeting the woman with an issue of blood. My name is not important, but my story might interest you. I live in Capernaum. Well, I used to live on the crest of that hill over there. I don't live there anymore because, well, at that time I was broke. Let me back up. You may not be aware of our laws. Many of you will know that a woman has a monthly cycle, which starts at puberty and lasts, well, I haven't come to the end of mine yet. It's supposed to go on for about seven days and come around every 28 days. According to our law, when that happens, we separate ourselves and then go back to ordinary living for the rest of the month. Up to this point, it's not really a problem, because frankly, when this happens, well, who wants to be with any people anyway? 
But in my case, the day came when the bleeding started and just simply never stopped. It went on and on and on. It went on for 12 long years. I hadn't been able to talk to anybody, speak to anybody, nothing, nothing at all. I had been a wealthy woman, plenty of money. So I sought out the help of doctors in the area, but they couldn't help me, although they still expected to get paid. I sought doctors far and wide, all of them wanting to get paid, but never a one could help me. I was so desperate that I just paid over and over again, but nobody could do anything to help me. Little by little, all my money disappeared until I was financially ruined. Believe it if you will, but at that time, I had, until then, I had been quite attractive. And then nobody wanted to be with me after that. I looked hideous. I hid myself away and lived as best I could. It was like being a leper. All that changed one day, and this is what happened. There's this rabbi in our town, his name is Jesus, and I had heard some pretty strange things about him. I'd even heard that he'd raised a widow's son from the dead, and I wondered, could he help me? If I could just slip behind him and touch his cloak, I could be healed. But it was forbidden to go out among people in this condition. I would have to be very careful not to be seen. But you know what? I had nothing to lose. And oh, so much to gain. If I could just be brave. Suddenly he was there. And he was surrounded by so many people. I felt sure I could do this and not be seen. I was just about in range of his cloak when somebody was crying out loudly in the front, talking about his dying child, and all the attention of all the folk was away from me. I took my chance. I reached out and touched his cloak. It was incredible. I knew instantly that the bleeding had stopped. After 12 long years, finally it had stopped. Then... Oh, who touched me? He's asking who touched him. And his disciples are fobbing it off, saying there were so many people around him. He, but he was looking straight at me, and I was sure that he knew, actually, that it had been me. Now, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. I was terrified. I had just broken the law in coming out in public and daring to touch him. I could be stoned for this. But instead of exposing me, he came to me and I told him my whole story. This is what he said. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Those 12 long years are but a distant memory now, as I've taken my place amongst the living again. Something else happened to me, and it wasn't physical. I knew that this Jesus was more than just a man. It wasn't only my body that needed healing. During those 12 long years, I had experienced rejection, loneliness, bitterness, and people being just plain greedy. But Jesus went right down to the core of my being and he changed who I am. Tell me, would you have grabbed his cloak? This was taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 43 to 48.
Ah, Judy and Larry Gent is there, and as Larry says, that was taken from the Gospel of St Luke, chapter 8, verses 43 to 48. Music with a Celtic sound now, as Sarah Lacey sings Stuart Townend's How Deep the Father's Love for Us. This one was recorded at the Keswick Convention in 2016 and it's Good, Good Father.
2016 Keswick Convention with Pat Barrett and Tony Brown's Good Good Father. Hi, here's David to tell us about this week's poem from Malcolm Geit. Malcolm Geit has written a series of poems based on some of George Herbert's poetic themes. This week we hear Malcolm reading about love and it's followed by Pembroke College Choir singing Upon Your Heart by Eleanor Daly. Love. Love took George Herbert's hand and now takes mine. The same quick eyes, the same wry, welcome smile, the same spear-pierced and always healing heart. He turns to me, and taking bread and wine, he spreads a table in the desert, while I hesitate and draw back, stand apart, afraid, as always, of committed love. But I have come too far to turn away. Though joy has vanished, she has led me here. So come, says love, there's nothing left to prove, and nothing that you need to do or say. I am that perfect love that casts out fear. Sit with George Herbert here, then taste and see, and find that all your loves are found in me. Malcolm Geit's poem was followed by Pembroke College Choir and Upon Your Heart. We'll have some more music and it's Donnie Murdo McLeod continuing the theme of love with The Love of God is Greater Far. Bye. 
sound again there for Donny Murder McLeod with The Love of God. 1917 is the date for that song, going by the album notes here. Here's David again. Cleansing with water is an integral part of Christian baptism, Muslim prayer and Jewish purification. Hindus aspire to bathe in the waters of the River Ganges. Ernie Ray now talks to representatives of different religions about the significance of rituals to do with water in their faith. Uh, First of all, the purification of all sins. The Ganges waters accepts into its bosom anyone of any kind of sin known to human beings uh, is forgiven, Uh, not by in the world of men, but certainly in in the world of God's and maybe in for afterlife. So that's the belief, which is why people are drawn to it in such numbers. I think the Reverend Begbie, back in the 19th century, called it the, the great laundry of souls. <laughs> that there's also a belief that the Ganges itself can become overburdened with human uh, contaminants in the way of, of uh, people's accumulated sins. And it's because holy men also bathe in the river, and holy people generally bathe in the river, uh, it, the river actually can also be cleansed that way. So it's, it's, it's a kind of a circular argument. And I found that quite interesting. Peter? Yes, indeed. Uh, three things. Um, first of all, the, the washing away of sin resonates deeply with the early Christian tradition as exemplified in the New Testament, where we talk very freely about uh, sins being washed away. Uh, Secondly, it reminds me of the practice of washing oneself with holy water on entering a church, and that happens probably more in the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, where there's a little stoop of water just as you go in the church door, and uh, someone entering the church might just uh, sign themselves with the sign of the cross, uh, again recalling the the washing of rebirth in baptism. 
Uh, but I'm also particularly struck by the way I think as Anglicans we tend to internalise uh, rather than ritualise our uh, preparation uh, for worship. We have a gathering prayer when we come together to celebrate uh, Holy Communion. We pray that God will cleanse the thoughts uh, of our hearts by the gift of his Holy Spirit. And we say that together. So we say it out loud, but it's something perhaps that we internalise. And maybe there's something for us to learn from the uh, the joining together of a ritual practice of preparation as well as the preparation of the heart. What about you, Diana? In Judaism, I, I think it's not so much washing, the, the possibility to wash away your sins. You can purify yourself from contact with something impure, such as a dead body um, or blood, um, menstrual blood. Um, it's not about a sin. But the what came to my mind is that there is a, a ritual involving water um, which takes place at the Jewish New Year, which is not a happy occasion like the, the regular New Year, but is a time of, um, is the beginning of a period of um, intense um, repentance for sin. And, um, and a, a ritual that some people do then is to go to a body of water, doesn't have to be flowing water, but to go to a body of water where a fish could live and, uh, and throw bread on the water. Um, and that symbolising the, the casting away of sin. Peter, when you go into a church, in most cases you will find the font by the, the door of the church. Why is that? Very straightforward. The uh, rite of Christian baptism is the way into the church. And so bumping into the font on the way into church um, is, is all part of um, uh, how we uh, encourage nurture and discipleship in the church. We remind ourselves that we one day in the past were baptised into Christ and became part of his community, his family. Sudipta? Yes, um, I was just thinking about that when I teach my students, I, I have a lot of Hindu students who have gone to temples and never thought about why there are uh, freestanding sculptures of the rivers Ganges and her tributary Yamuna right at the entrance of those temples. So we do lots of things ritually. And I tell them, look, they're standing there to, to actually symbolically cleanse you as you enter the inner sanctum of the temple. Sudipta, I've read many times that there's a big problem with the Ganges because it must be one of the most polluted rivers in the world. I, I read somewhere that there's many billions of litres of, of polluted sewage pour into the Ganges uh, every hour. Um, th there's an irony here, isn't there? A paradox between yes. entering the Ganges to get cleansed and you're entering a very dirty river. Absolutely. There's a, there's a paradox head-on, and that's been there for a long time, actually, because the rivers didn't get polluted yesterday. It's been accumulating over the years. But I think that the waters that the pilgrims um, are either standing and praying in or, or doing time of uh, ritual bathing, uh, immersing their bodies in, that, that's not the water in the physical sense uh, of that polluted actual liquid in which you stand. It's, it's, uh, it's the idea of it which is so important. And I've seen uh, people, you know, otherwise, you know, computer scientists or doctors themselves uh, disregard that and actually go through the ritual without thinking about that because they're not thinking about this particular life and this particular body. They're thinking about the afterlife and then maybe even the cycle of lives that, that ends you and thinking about uh, people that come, come before you. 
there are parts of the river in which you know when you have raw sewage coming in from the cities i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily look forward to having my ritual yes. bath in those spots <laughs> but you are nevertheless the idea is that you are actually bathing in an idea yes diana both within hinduism and judaism there is the opportunity for um for adults and for men and women in different contexts to to uh continue to immerse themselves and um but what about christianity peter do you do you wish you could could you go to the jordan and have your own immersion would it have a religious value for you do you, do you miss not being able to do that if you can't yes baptism um as you rightly imply is um a once and for all event and i think you put your finger on a really important point about how uh, christians as they grow up who've been baptized as uh, uh, as infants might actually uh, find that sort of refreshment if you like of that experience so cram at the reformation argued that at each baptism we observe that was a renewal of our own baptism uh, and today i think we've got a much deeper understanding that there is a need in a way to renew uh, what happened to you uh, all those years ago and um we've begun to use uh, the renewal of baptismal vows uh, perhaps on an annual basis maybe at uh, uh, easter time when people can reconnect with the baptismal water in the font and sign themselves with the cross and uh, reaffirm their christian faith so it's a, a something that i think we are uh, continuing to explore and we'll come back to any rain friends after this which is the Praise Gathering Choir and Stuart Townend's Loved Before the Dawn of Time.
a memory heard praise gathering with loved before the dawn of time or salvation song as it's sometimes known but now let's get back to Ernie Ray and friends it's a very important point that we're touching on here and um, you know in, in Hinduism it's it's usually elderly people who go on these very difficult pilgrimages in the especially in the upper reaches of the river um, and it's reserved in some ways for later in life where you're supposed to be entering the third phase of which is you know the after you're done with your family duties and your obligations to society and um, and and so that you know that is much more meaningful because the, the journey the the to the water itself is a kind of a reenactment of this journey to, through life itself. And the other thing is that not too long ago, and even maybe now in some parts of, of northern India, especially where people would, would actually would prefer to die immersed in the water. And, and dying immersed in the holy waters of the Ganges or in the city of Varanasi or Banaras, which is supposed to be holy, in the precincts of that, that ancient um, a spot is supposed to be very holy, and your 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 you sort of uh, your, your chances of making it to the to the good place is is higher there. And the importance so, of it, Sudipta, is shown in the fact that the Kumila, the great celebration where uh, millions of people gather by the banks of the Ganges, is supposed to be the biggest gathering of human beings in the whole world. Yeah, you can see it from outer space. Um, I think the last count was over period of a few days, something like 21 million or something. Diana, reflecting on our present situation and the reaction to COVID-19 and the stress that's made on hand washing on a regular basis, you're, you're tempted to say, well, you know, our traditions have taught this for a long time, long before they, mm -hmm. uh, the, the health specialists got onto it. So I'm really glad you said that, Ernie, because I've been speaking about mikvah um, mostly, but but actually a washing ritual that's more widely practiced but and more frequently practiced is hand washing. Traditionally, an Orthodox Jew would wash his or her hands ritually immediately or very soon after getting up in the morning every day. And then before every meal that includes bread um, would also ritually wash his or her hands. So in a Jewish context, washing hands has always been a very big thing. And um, in fact, historically, in times of plagues, um, when Jewish communities were in some cases spared from the worst effects of them, um, the hand-washing uh, hand rituals were um, thought to be responsible for that in um, times when other people didn't wash their hands to eat. I want to ask each one of you a final question. How do you feel personally after the ritual, Diana? What does the mikveh do to you? I feel transformed. And uh, that, that's been my experience of, of being in the mikveh, as, is moving is the capacity of water, um, in a certain ritual context to to move me from one state to another. And that's a very powerful idea, um, the possibility of transformation um, with the help of external forces in a religious context um, is uh, a very powerful, inspiring and uh, reassuring idea for me. Peter? When I baptize um, and it's always a, uh, a moving experience and um, I look back and realize that I've joined someone in their journey of personal transformation either at the beginning of their lives or in the middle or occasionally at the end I feel that transcendent connection that transcendent experience I feel I've seen God at work 
in in the ritual. And I also um, feel that I've made a contribution uh, by God's grace to creating the family, the community uh, of the church. So, Dipta, what does yes, it feel um, like when you emerge from the Ganges? It's something that I'm still experiencing, but I'm thinking about relatives and elderly in, in my family that I've seen very closely. And, it, and the way I would describe it is that they are, their states are altered, they are feel renewed, and they're inexplicably at, at, at peace. And peace is the word I would use most of all in touch with the ambient universe and, uh, and, and in deep contemplation. And did you feel at peace? I did feel at peace. And that's our programme once again. Thank you for listening. And our thanks too to Arnie Ray and his friends there, Malcolm Guyte for his sonnet, Judy and Larry Gentis, uh, Mike Barclay and James Thornton, all for their contributions this morning. And also to Sam Ross for pulling the whole thing together for us. We'll leave you with the London Community Gospel Choir, a song as Martin Smith's I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. And as it happens, Martin Smith is the a guest vocalist on this particular track. But it's goodbye for now. Yeah. I could sing of your love